Hello there, you are about to listen to an episode of The Partial Historians. Lucky you. (laughs) We just wanted to let you know that this is one of our earlier episodes when we were still figuring out how to actually podcast. So if you would like to listen to episodes on Sex and Ancient Rome and that sort of thing, then this is the place to be and we apologise if the quality is not quite up to our later episodes. However, if you would like to start with us the series that we're currently recording, please go to episode 36 for Romulus and Remus. Hello there and welcome to episode one of The Partial Historians. I am one of your hosts. My name is Fiona, although amongst my more intimate acquaintances, I am known as Dr. Radford. I'm your second host uh, for this program. My name is Peter, uh, but you can refer to me as Dr. Greenfield. You're rather <laughs> formal, <aren't> you? <laughs> Well, you know, one's expertise has to be on display, indeed, doesn't it? Indeed, <laughs> indeed. So for our first episode, we thought we'd be shameless and go for the ratings and concentrate on sex, 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 sex in ancient Rome. Well, you know, it's something that everybody can relate to, I think. So that makes it pertinent and relevant. It does, it does. I'm just joking. But to get down to business. So what we're going to be looking at and focusing on in this particular program is specifically the way in which... Uh, sex is thought about and constructed in ancient Rome. And our focus over the course of this program will be in ancient Rome. So Mm. we should sort of declare our partiality, if you like, as the partial historians. We are indeed. We have a bit of a Roman bias. (laughs) Love the Romans. So (laughs) if you're interested in Roman history and interested in finding out more, this is definitely the podcast to come to. Absolutely. And to begin with the very beginning, we're going to start with the act itself today. Peter, what did you come across? Uh, Well, it turns out that we don't actually know very much about the act itself. Surprise, surprise. Uh, (laughs) Unfortunately, oh, well, obviously it's happening in an intimate setting. You don't necessarily want to be there. It's obviously somebody else's private time. Uh, But our source material does talk a lot about sex. So there are certain aspects that we can nail down. Mm. Uh, Who's doing who is... It's yes. a good place to start. Um, we always like a bit of who's doing here. Even <laughs> these days, I think, that's something that connects us. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, gossip's Absolutely. Sort of half of the course, isn't it? Love a bit of gossip. <laughs> uh, so, uh, to me, the, the one story that stood out to me that when I was looking into this and mm-hmm. that I really wanted to pursue was the life of Julius Caesar. Yep. Uh, so, he starts off inauspiciously, mm. uh, being accused of uh, having sex with the king of... Um, Bithynia, I think. Uh, yes, I had heard that rumour myself. <laughs> as a young man sent out to the east to do his tour of duty, as you do. Of course, um, yes. Just rumpy bumpy. As it happens, ends up at the court of Nicomedes, mm-hmm. as you do. As you do. And then the rumours begin. Yes. That he's perhaps overstayed his welcome uh, for a very particular reason. Mm. And uh, the problem is, it seems, that he's essentially lost his chastity. Right, uh, yeah. Which is... It's one of these lovely sort of Latin terms that we get, uh, pudicidia, uh, the idea of appropriate sexual behaviour. Somehow somehow he loses a little bit of his chastity yeah. while he's hanging out with Nicomedes. And the assumption seems to be that he has been a passive recipient of Ooh. the physical affection. And that, that's a really bad thing. I mean, we should probably actually start by talking a little bit about that, shouldn't yeah, we? Yeah, well, Roman attitudes to sex Absolutely, come into this. Yeah. Their this point, attitudes are a little different to ours. I mean, obviously, hey, let's face it, we all love sex. Whatever civilization, whatever society. Everyone's Keeps going. Yeah, everyone loves sex. Um, but the Roman way of looking at sexuality is a little different to ours. I mean, scholars aren't entirely sure, you know, they can't pinpoint it exactly, can they? But there is definitely a difference there. Oh, yeah. And it's certainly one of these things that we have trouble coming to grips with because we're Mm. very much bound up in a Western thinking in terms of heterosexuality, heterosexuality, homosexuality, all of these ideas about placing sexuality into categories related to gender. Yes. Uh, Whereas the Romans seem to be much more concerned with who is playing the power role and who is the receiver of the power. Yes. Essentially. Absolutely. Well, I think I remember, I think in in my reading, uh, one of the things that really interested me the most was the idea that, you know, the Roman man, it it was sort of degrading for him to be giving pleasure to anyone else. You know, it had to really be all about his pleasure in order to be, you know, a, a properly masculine man, you know, in regards to his sexuality, you know, that, that really fascinated me. And the fact that oral sex 
is one of the lowest things you can do, particularly oral sex with a woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's cunnilingus, to use a technical term. <laughs> Fellatio is bad. Yeah. yeah. But uh, on a lady, cunnilingus is even worse. Yes, uh, yes. So you could be particularly sullied uh, in a Roman perception. Yeah, and isn't there, there was like a pretty catchy saying, you know, recorded about Julius Caesar, wasn't there, that he was a... Uh, uh, a man for all women and a woman for all men, something uh, like yeah. that. So, yeah. Well, actually, yeah. this is a really interesting point that, yeah. you, that you point out. Um, yeah. This this idea of being a man or a woman uh, for all men is is obviously a reference to this passive construction Absolutely. of sexuality yeah. and being uh, a man for all women, yes. uh, being willing to take the active role when it's absolutely necessary according mm. to gender. Yep, yep. Um, it's pretty difficult uh, in terms of uh, the biology of the process of course. Uh, to be considered a power player if you are a woman. Of course, uh, yes. You're conceived of as always being in the position of receiving. Mm. So this idea of being both active with women and passive with men is is part of a broader political invective of that's course. being used yes. in the Roman Republic. Yes, yes. And I was looking into this because I was like, oh, that's a nice little snappy catchphrase to yes. sort of sum up Julius Caesar. Absolutely. But the trouble is it's, 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 not, yeah. it's not just yeah. him. Yes, yes. We see this uh, used against other people and Absolutely. most famously uh, Cicero yes. uh, is using this against Verres. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> he loves a bit of invective. <laughs> loves a bit of invective yeah. after all. So... <laughs> Understandably, he seems to be one of the the forerunners on that sort of uh, invective. And Varys gets accused of being exactly the same. Mm. This idea of being promiscuous with women is Mm. one thing, and it's not necessarily positive, but even worse is being promiscuous with men. Absolutely. uh, Particularly if you want to receive the pleasure. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, and that's just it. I mean, it's it's it is so different to the way we look at things today. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, and it, but it, at the same time, I agree with you when I was doing my readings and sort of looking for references to the act itself. There is just so much invective used, you know, against, you know, political mm. opponents which isn't, you know, you don't really know how much truth lies behind these things. Well, it doesn't really give no. us a proper sort of no. insight into who's actually doing who. I mean, exactly. obviously yeah. we assume that men and women are engaging in sexual reproduction because yes. we have generations of Romans. So that must be happening. Yes. But it tends not to be what's spoken about in our source material. It's not controversial enough to make it into the historical record. No. And I think this is something that's really important. Excuse our perspective a little bit. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Because what we have surviving mm. is a whole range of interesting and slightly uh, deceptively depraved. Of- <laughs> let's face it, let's just get it out in the open. The Romans do have a bit of a refutation when it comes to sex in the modern, you know, in the general populace, in the modern mind. They, they come across, I think, because of, you know, TV and film and that sort of thing is a bit bit depraved. Well, they've certainly there's certainly been a certain amount of artistic license yeah. taken with that. Yes, and I think because their conceptualization of it and looking at it in terms of power structure rather mm. than a sort of a gender based ideology, yes. it makes it so much far removed from what you're used to thinking about. Yes. but in general terms, there doesn't seem to be a whole heap of criticism laid mm. against Roman men for. Uh, sleeping with other men, yes, as long as the power, yes, of course, is, position is held. And so, I mean, the interesting thing I suppose about I suppose about Rome as opposed to Greece is that you know Greece is obviously famous in modern minds, perhaps for you know man on man action. Let's say, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we we could talk about that a lot, but we're focusing on Rome at the moment, so we won't go into that too much. <laughs> but the difference, I suppose, with Rome is that. It's not necessarily, as you say, a bad thing for a man to be sleeping with another man as long as he's taking the active role and also as long as the man is not a citizen, like another male, like a citizen boy. Mm, you know, mm. that, that their bodies were held to be protected, whereas in Greece it's kind of the opposite. You would be having an affair with a man of good family. You know, you would be having... Yeah, and for, yeah. for ancient Greeks it's much more embedded into the way that the noble society is constructed. Yes. But for the Romans it's a very different perception. Mm. Uh, it was It was totally permissible if it mm. was a slave uh, or somebody of lower, lesser, non-citizen Absolutely. status who exactly. had agreed to engage in it. Yes. Those and they're well-male were... prostitutes. I mean, that's... Yeah, 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 that's... I mean, I actually... I found a reference to the fact that there is actually... Um, I think it was in Preneste or something like that. There is actually a calendar where it's recorded that there's a holiday for male prostitutes on the day after the holiday for female prostitutes. So. Well, everybody needs a holiday that's... every now and then, <laughs> don't they? Uh, celebrate them all. what your profession <laughs> is, everyone can use a break. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, I suppose also prostitution is kind of an interesting area as well you know Mm. for for sexual relations because you do get because it's i suppose a legal thing there's a little bit of 
talk about prostitution as well, you know, in regards to who's doing it to who. Yeah, yeah. And there's definitely been sort of within the last 10 years a lot more scholarship aimed at trying to deconstruct the Roman understanding of prostitution, how Mm. it's operating uh, in their society. And it seems to be really quite interesting in terms of it's not necessarily a monetary transaction in the way that we would tend to think of prostitution. Right. But it is more of a cultural uh, idea that's built up around the whole slavery system. Mm, so yes. it becomes very integral to the way the society is structured around slavery. Yes, because of course, you know, in a brothel in ancient Rome, you know, generally the women were probably, women and the men, whatever that was going on there, they were probably owned by the, you know, the procurer. Yeah, sense, and you do get some unusual yeah. examples of yeah. of laws coming in, particularly uh, later in the imperial period, so mm. sort of jumping ahead to sort of like 400 uh, AD, yes. where you have legislation against uh, husbands prostituting their wives. So when families mm-hmm. get down on their luck, <laughs> yeah. a sad consequence of, well, how do you survive in the ancient world? What uh, are the options yes. when you fall into times of trouble? Yes, and, yes. and sometimes a woman can seem like a natural money-earning resource yes, for course. a family. Mm. And as shocking as that might seem mm. uh, from a modern perspective, this you want to eat. You want to eat. There's not necessarily a whole heap of choice out there. Yeah. And so this is something that the sort of the Christian uh, literature tends to pick up and is mm. really negative about. And yes. sort of they use it as an exemplar for the sort of degeneration of the Roman state. Sure. But it needs to sort of be looked at in its broader context as well. Not that I want to get too much into prostitution today because no, I think no, that's almost a whole other topic. It really is but yeah, it's just, it's just something that you know you do come across a little bit in regards to yeah, who's doing it to whom because you definitely have to acknowledge that they're, they're you know, they're out there, you know, it's not just yeah, you know, something that's... And we're talking about broad scales of absolutely, these things as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean and also of course when you're dealing with prostitution, not, I mean not actual prostitution, but when we're talking about prostitution, there are, of course, references to, um, you know, in Tacitus, there's a reference to a woman who registered as a prostitute so she could avoid a charge of adultery. You know, a woman from a senatorial <laughs> As family. you would. Yeah, exactly. Well, hey, you've got to dodge them somehow. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, that I helps mean, dodge a bullet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, that's, you know, meant to be something shocking. And, and well, But yeah. that's interesting because that mm. almost positions prostitution as being a lesser social evil than adultery yes. and the consequences of adultery for a woman. Well, that's just I mean, when you are a prostitute in ancient Rome, you are, you know, infamia. You know, you are, you, you have, mm. you have no reputation. You're ranked alongside like actors and gladiators and those sorts of people who make money from their bodies and do it publicly. And so it's an extremely shameful thing. Um, but on the other hand, a woman accused of adultery, well, she's she also... She stands to lose everything. Yeah, she has also lost so. her reputation. And I think if she's convicted, she'd also, you know, officially be branded as sort of, you know, with the infamia sort of... <laughs> yeah. If you're going to tar me with the brush, exactly. let me just paint myself. <laughs> Very scarlet letter. <laughs> I can see how it would happen. Yes, exactly. But again, you know, this is obviously used by Tacitus as a sign of degeneration amongst, you know, upper class women. So, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. Well, what's uh, to get back to sort of the essence mm. of this prostitution, yes. uh, I think it's really interesting the Latin term that we have for prostitute. Yes. Uh, meritrix. Yes. Uh, someone who earns. Mm. That exactly, sort of encapsulates yes. a whole host of sort of uh, assumptions. But what's really interesting is that within the context of the broader schema of slavery in ancient Rome, a lot of these uh, prostitutes, these meritrixes, would not be earning as such for themselves. Of course, for their master. Earning, yeah. earning mm. for whoever possesses them. That's so right. there's, a, there's a whole cycle of sort of almost a, a black market currency, if you like. Absolutely, I mean, if you yes. own slaves mm. and presumably you're a citizen mm. and you earn from that, you know, that's seen as legitimate on mm. some level, the assumption is. And then there is, of course, uh, references to certain women who, you know, are seen as sort of gold diggers, I suppose, in a sense. Like, you know, you get a sense in, you know, poetry and that sort of thing a little bit that mm. there are women out there who are sleeping around you know, in, in return for other things. In return for favours. That's well, right. Yeah. yeah, and this seems to be something that sort of goes along with the whole Western tradition, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> Maybe this I mean, is again, you know, is it, is it invective or is, you know, is it just a literary device? I mean, I think I think it's Propertius who says that his mistress is more grasping than a common prostitute, you know? <laughs> well, it does make it difficult because, I mean, yes. in, in the sense that... It's a male point of view. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're getting a very biased male perspective on these sorts of things. Absolutely. And, and what sort of options do women have for mm. legitimately being able to keep themselves in the ancient world. It's a very tricky scenario. Yes. And to get to the point where you need to rely on your lover mm. in in that sense for physical means in order to be able to survive. Absolutely. I mean, how 
what else are you supposed to do? Absolutely. Especially if you're not, you know, a slave or someone of the lower classes, you know, if you're a little bit above that. And you have fallen on hard times. and Just because you're noble doesn't mean you're wealthy. Exactly. But then, of course, you do get this feeling that, um, particularly in sort of, you know, the late Republic and going into the Imperial period, I don't know about you, but you do kind of get this feeling. I mean, maybe it's, maybe I want to believe. (laughs) You do get a feeling that there are women out there who are kind of having, just having a good old-fashioned time, (laughs) you know, for their own entertainment. Yeah, and and good on them. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Power to the ladies. Exactly. And, And I think this is where the lack of female authored sources becomes a real issue. Absolutely. Uh, Because obviously we're dealing with uh, a lot of uh, male perspective and a lot of essentially male bias on these sorts of issues. Mm. And when uh, women are read as pleasure sources, when women are read as uh, gold diggers, when women are read as prostitutes, all of these all of these labels are being associated with them. This becomes less about sex and more about gender. Yes. But. Uh, to move on to something else, I'm sure you've got some really interesting examples that may have come up in your source reading mm. in to do with sexuality and who's doing it, what's going on. Yeah, so I suppose it's one. Of, I, I suppose one of the things that kind of started to interest me, and again, as you say, it's kind of be a, another, a whole other topic, but. The legislation that came in during... I know you're a fan of Augustus, but he did bring in some legislation that seems to be restricting female sexuality a little bit, trying to get it, you know, back to a more traditional... I mean, I suppose not just female sexuality. I suppose just mm, The legislation's to, very coercive. Yes, uh, yes. It, it's sort of projecting back to a version of Rome that never really existed. Of course, yes. Um, the golden age <laughs> thinking, we call it. I think Augustus in his uh, wisdom, perhaps, had dreams about how Rome should be under his tutelage. And the legislation is very much in keeping with that. So we get a sort of a barrage of legislation between sort of 18 BC all the way through to about 12 AD on various topics relating to sort of appropriate sexual relations, who can marry whom, uh, the sort of penalties involved for adultery. Absolutely. I think, yeah, particularly the Lex Iulia de Maritandis Ordinibus, 18 BC. Don't you just love my Latin translation? Nobody knows how Latin was really pronounced, but safe, totally safe. (laughs) Lex Papia Papaya of 9 BC <laughs> were the ones I was um, I was really looking at because mm-hmm. yeah it was looking at the idea that women who had three or more children um, they were a little bit freer they they earned certain freedoms yeah the right of three children now this yes. is a really interesting one and so yeah. pre- oh, sex is embedded in here somewhere <laughs> yes yeah, yeah. so, I mean you know the idea that you have to produce legitimate children you can't just go out and have sex with whoever you like and no. control your own <laughs> fertility you know it's not sex with no consequences no no it's very yeah. it's very particularly driven sex and driven in the right direction yes. so and hopefully these children are by your husband <laughs> well I mean they, in order for them to be considered legitimate of you course. have to accept them at the uh, uh, yes. at sort of during the period after the birth and be willing to acknowledge them as his. Yes. So once you've jumped that hurdle, whether they're his or not, well, yes. it doesn't really matter anymore. Right. Importantly, you've you've nailed the three. Yep. Um, <laughs> more, more crucial, I think, to this sort of legislation is just how sort of um, prescriptive it is in terms mm-hmm. of women and their bodies and pregnancy in general. I mean, yes. the chances of getting three pregnancies to birth and presumably, them yourself. presumably <laughs> these children have to survive to a certain age in mm. order to be recognised by the law. Yes. We, although we do get the really unusual example of Livia, Augustus's wife, being granted uh, the uh, right of three course. children when she really only had two. And see, so this is the fascinating. <laughs> this, this is the fascinating thing. You do still get those hints through the sources, even though they often have, you know, these political bents. They might be, in, you know, using invective or whatever else. You still do get these instances where you kind of think there's a genuine love. You know, there's a genuine relationship or genuine partnership going on there. Um, and, you know, the, her, you kind of get the feeling that maybe the sexual relationship obviously goes along with that. It's, well, maybe this is what you think, but that's maybe. certainly not the way I read that, <laughs> that ridiculous scenario to maybe me. Maybe I'm romantic. <laughs> to me, that one seems highly politicised. <laughs> um, Livia holds this sort of uh, pertinent place in at the... At the centre of Augustan ideology, to of a certain course, extent, yes. she's become what it would be equivalent in our terms. Yes, well, yeah. like the first lady of the US. Of course, like, yeah. You know, she has a certain nous about her that you can't just ignore. Mm. And in political terms, it was really pivotal for mm. Augustus to position Livia yep. as 
above all the other Roman women. Mm. And he does this in a number of ways, but certainly awarding her this sort of retrospective, yes. uh, completely false. She's a lucky woman, that Lydia. <laughs> you know, but that's the award thing. I mean, of the three children I, is I part have to of admit, that process. I still have to ask myself, you know, why not get rid of her earlier? You know, when it became apparent that there weren't going to be any more little bubbas. Well. Uh, <laughs> maybe he waited too long, you think? Too, in too the, little too late? <laughs> on, the most, on the most speculative bent, maybe Livia yes. was really the power. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. Well, that'll that'll we're, we're drifting. Some... We're... Let's reel it back in. <laughs> so, sex, you say? Yes, that's right. So, they, they, they did it, but uh, we know Livia and Augustus did it, but yes. they weren't very successful at producing any children, no, unfortunately. Because, of course, I mean, and this is the whole idea as well. I mean, we have to acknowledge that as much as, obviously, the Romans had sex for fun, there can be no doubt about that. There is also a, this real need for sex to produce children. You know, it's... Yeah, well, uh, the way that you maintain an aristocratic family is mm. to have the next generation. Absolutely. And I guess that's what makes the Augustan family so interesting in that mm. sense, is that Livia is able to produce children earlier in her fertile career to her first husband. Yes. And Augustus is able to produce children mm. from his previous marriage as well, and mm. yet put them both together and... Hapeless. No. Hapeless pair. <laughs> Nothing really happens to him. It's all spark but no fire. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but yeah, it is, it is this whole idea that, uh, I mean, obviously it, it is something that concerns us to this day. You know, you've still got women, you know, doing IVF and that sort of thing. But yeah, mm, fertility definitely. is very tied to this. And that's obviously something we can come back to, you know, in a yeah, later episode. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Because um, it's an important consequence of sex. <laughs> but it, it, does, it does sort of make you think because, you know, with women in the ancient world, I mean, although there certainly are, you know, contraceptive methods and perhaps abortifacants and that sort of thing, they're not fail-safe, no more than ours are today. No, no. And, you know, it's a risky business. I it mean, do you, it's one thing to have sex. It's another thing entirely to fall pregnant and Absolutely. then carry that child to term. Yes. And then to go through the tricky process of childbearing. Absolutely. I mean, there's even if, you know, if, let's say one of us were to fall pregnant accidentally. God forbid. It would never be an accident. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's, uh, it's a lot less risky for us, you know, these days. Yeah. We don't have to think of it... Well, we don't. We perhaps it's just the way our culture is. Think, we don't I, really think. Of well, it there in tends a to be. Term. I think there tends to be quite a strong perception in the Western world that childbirth yes. is far safer than it actually is. Probably, um, yes, yeah. It is still fraught with just as many dangers as it used to be. It's yes. just that most of them we pick up on and yes. intervene early enough to, to prevent save them. Ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. But when those tragedies do happen, mm. oh, of course, yeah, things can still go wrong, of course. But um, but certainly, I think you'd be very aware. I mean, I I think I would be as an ancient Roman lady. I think I'd be very aware of those consequences. <laughs> Maybe you should come up with an ancient Roman lady name for yourself. <laughs> Perhaps we should. <laughs> my Latin teacher had great difficulty with my name because it's so not Latin at all. <laughs> Luckily, it ends yeah. in an A. That's right. That's right. You can just get away with it as is. But uh, I, I, always had a, I always had a fancy for Agrippina the Younger, so maybe I'll be, maybe I'll be Agrippina. <laughs> Agrippina Tertia. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and you, Oh, oh uh, you know, our Peter works quite well, I think. Mm. Uh, also ending in an A, but I'll get of back course. to you on that. Yeah. I might do, some, might do some extra research. Just who it is, indeed, I would like to be. Indeed, indeed. Um, <laughs> to bring things sort of back to uh, yes, of course, <laughs> the topic at hand. Yes, yes. So Julius Caesar, yes, who's who's my bugbear for this week? Yes, um, he's accused of having many love affairs with women and with men. Mm. This tends to be part of the broad sort of sexual invective. Obviously, Cleopatra is a big one, of course. Very uh, famous. Yes, <laughs> it seems to have been there. Mm. So can't you, ignore that one. Side note: mm. Do you think that he fathered Caesarian? Oh, well, you know, what are the chances? (laughs) If the small child has to end up dead because of that rumour, let's say it's true. Yes, yes, yes. I'd much rather believe it was real. That's true. Uh, Augustus, see, see, this is why I don't like him. This is why I don't like him. Ruthless, I admire the ruthless Ruthless. ambition, but like him, no. Oh, well, you know, maybe maybe in time I can convince you. Yes, yes, we'll see. We'll see. We'll get back to that. What's interesting, I think, about this, uh, like starting with Julius Caesar, yes. uh, from my perspective, is it yes. leads nicely into Augustus, who's obviously somebody very close to my heart, of course, in an in imaginary sense yeah. uh, as a historian. Um, but Augustus gets accused very much of similar things to what Julius Caesar does: this mm. idea of sleeping around with many women, yes. um, and also being receptive to male affection yes. and being willing to be passive to a certain degree. 
tisk, in that. Tisk, tisk. Well, I wouldn't want to. Well, <laughs> we don't want to superimpose the, the the sort of attitudes of the ancient world onto a modern audience necessarily. I'm going to say, from my perspective, I would think it's fine if that's that's what of he enjoys. Oh, of course. But from is, a yeah. Roman perspective, obviously, this would be an issue. Yes. What was interesting with the way that Suetonius, uh, in his uh, life of Augustus, mm. represents uh, Augustus's sort of spectrum of sexuality mm. is to suggest that his sleeping around with other women whilst promiscuous, yes, is all part of his political agenda to sort of get behind enemy lines. Of course. And to yes. sort of gauge what's going on with his political uh, opponents. He is very clever, I'll give you that. And and this leads me to think of that sort of the really infamous moment in Julius Caesar's career where mm. he's gotten married to Pompeia, yes. who's the granddaughter of Sulla, so mm. this is tying together some nice political things for him. Yeah. But he has to end up divorcing her because of these shocking rumours that take place mm. uh, at one of these festivals. Are right, so we referring to Clodius here? Clodius, young, young Clodius? Yes, the yeah. infamous Clodius. The infamous Clodius. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, sometime when we talk about politics, we'll go into the depth of his depravity. Oh, yes. Uh, but for now, just be aware. And his sisters. <laughs> but they're, they're quite a group. They are indeed. Um, but they have, they're having a particular right festival uh, women focused, men aren't permitted to attend, although mm. it's held in the house of season this particular year. Mm. And I believe this is the Bonadia, isn't it? Yes, the yes. Bonadia festival. Yes. So the festival celebrating the good goddess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's led by the Vestal Virgins and the matrons of Rome. Yes. and Highly respectable bunch. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Yeah, indeed. Can't get more respectable <laughs> no, than a no. bunch of virgins, <laughs> particularly when you think about sex. <laughs> And Clodius is accused of sneaking in. If and if that's not bad enough, a man sneaking in to mm. a woman-only festival. How did he um, do this? Dressed as a woman, oh, of course. Yes. So he, perhaps he had that androgynous sort of sexiness about him that allowed him to get away with such a thing. Oh yes. Um, but once he was there, rumor has it that uh, Pompey was waiting, expecting, and oh. hoping he'd turn up. <laughs> and and things uh, went from there. And mm. the very strength of these rumors, whether there's any fact in any of this, it turns into a huge political schmozzle mm. and it's really important from Caesar's perspective to make sure that he divorces Pompeia mm. because, because the wife of Caesar must be above reproach am I well, right? Well <laughs> you do get that sort of fra- famous sort of phrasing Yes, but what's really significant is the fact that He's been shown to not be in the power position in his own marriage. True. Another man has assumed that position. So it's really important from a sort of, if we're thinking about adultery in that legal sense, yes. and also the passive, active notions of mm. sexuality and sexual behaviour, yes. it's really important for him to show that he's beyond that and better than that and yes. above Clodius. And one of the ways that he can do that is mm. to secure the divorce from Pompeia yes. and just cut it straight out. So that's, I mean, that's really what it all comes down to in a sense. I mean, the active-passive thing, of course, but the power. I mean, it is really about power. And that's, mm. that's why, I suppose, going back to what we were talking about earlier with you know how Roman citizen boys were off limits, you know, it's the whole idea that they were of a certain standing in society, whereas well, slaves are of no standing. They're the potential yeah. generation who will come into power. Exactly. And yes. the last thing that you want to do is sully that potential power no. by forcing them to become accepting of a passive position. Absolutely. So it, it would be completely inappropriate from a Roman perspective to go down that path. Mm. With slaves, it's a very different thing. They're, never, they're not going to be citizens, no. not in their lifetime, very rarely. Mm. And so the idea that that this is a very different dynamic means that it becomes far more acceptable. Mm. And if you do happen to have a passive indulgence, yes. um, the slave's probably not likely to tell anybody. <laughs> Wouldn't be worth their life, <laughs> No. Do you want to be manumitted? Don't you dare say a word. Oh, a little secret. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes me wonder about what happens on Saturnalia, where they have the role reversals. Oh, is it all God, of a sudden yes. permissible? <laughs> is that the only time of the year where it would be oh, permissible? That would be weird. What a reversal. Yeah, so this idea that you've got this role reversal um, Mm. at the Saturnalia where the slaves are treated as free citizens for the day and Mm. they're waited upon by their masters. Mm. I wonder if this also extends into a little bit of illicit sexual activity Mm. uh, during the course of the the celebrations. (laughs) Idle speculation from a very partial historian. But yeah, of course, and what you were saying about Caesar's wife, it is really interesting because it is the idea that, you know, here Caesar is, you know, rumour, rumour, rumour about Mm. him all the time. But 
you know, the slightest rumor about her and, you know. Yeah, and it's over. Yeah, Out of there. Done. Yeah, we're dealing dealing with not just a double standard, but almost a a different, there's a parallel system in place where what's Mm. done for women and what's appropriate for women is very different from what's appropriate and acceptable for men. Absolutely. I mean, it can be kind of depressing because, as you say, we have so few sources, particularly on such a topic as this. I mean, this is obviously extremely intimate. Mm. Roman women probably won't shock anyone listening to us to know we're expected to be you know chaste they were expected to be faithful wives yeah you know yeah. ideally married to one man you know a univira you know mm, the whole idea the mythical one <laughs> the one wife woman one woman man <laughs> no wait no way around one man woman oh my goodness you Sorry. have you've moved into completely uh, I but i quite like the sound of it it'd be interesting to see how it would operate <laughs> but yes it is this whole idea that uh, that you had to be chaste and yet you do get this feeling that Women did somehow perhaps manage to circumvent that sometimes, you know? Yeah. It wasn't yeah. always possible, but I mean, you know, I'm sure for well, many women this that is, we don't hear about. Whether but, this is just a yeah. matter of uh, sort of the the insecurity mm. coming through in the male source material, particularly in the Latin poets. Oh, yes. I mean... I mean, God, reading those. <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> Ovid and Papertius uh-huh. uh, in particular, and the dramas that, that they see, and even Catullus to a certain extent, uh, the dramas involved with the... The sort of the will she be there? Won't she turn up? Yes. What now? Does it she is almost really, a role reversal. Does isn't she it? really want yes. me? Yeah, yeah. There, there is a sort of a fawning aspect to the Latin love poetry, which stands in what appears to be contradistinction to what seems to be the heavily politicalized sources, where you get very strong representations of what is masculine and what is feminine. Absolutely. And these seems to be turned on their heads and played with in the poetry. Yes, and I mean, I'm, I mean, you, you hear so many theories about it. You know, is it a way of making a statement? You know, a political <laughs> statement, saying that you know we are part of a new generation who aren't going to take part in the traditional masculinity, and therefore, yeah, that and changes... I'm interested in a woman's pleasure. Yes, oh, I mean, God, <laughs> I get quite depressed sometimes when I think when I read about how Roman men weren't supposed to give any pleasure and blah blah blah. It sounds very well, very and dumb. and then like offered a breath of fresh air. Absolutely. You know, it would be really nice if maybe you could come at the same time amen but yeah and you do get that idea of course of the whole the affair you know Mm. the whole idea of you know meeting up with someone you know having a mistress who's married you know you you do get and well and part of me thinks that this has got to be to do with the way that society is so circumscribed about everybody in that nobility having to be married yeah and so what opportunities do you have it's Mm. a very different sort of scenario from today where people sort of hold off on marriage in order to explore absolutely their youthful sexuality yeah so we should probably say that roman women could be married from the age of about 12 you know yeah well certainly betrothed both yes, and, yeah. and married off quite young, certainly mm. well before they're out of sort of teenagehood. Mm. And so this doesn't leave any sort of wriggle room in terms of sexual exploration. Well, particularly for women. I mean, men is much later, wasn't it, generally? Men, generally, ten, men yeah. tend to marry from about 25 upwards. Yeah, which and is about, so, sa- well, you know, roughly standard for our age group, I would say. You know, yeah, yeah. people start to think about marriage around those, <laughs> that age. Sometimes, Do they? Sometimes, Do sometimes, they? Sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> But yeah, you know, there's definitely a lot more time for exploration for the man yeah. than there is for the woman. And of course, but he's never going to be bound by and he, the same... Well, he's never bound by the same sort of strictures no. of chastity. No, because I mean, the I, I suppose are. the idea is, I mean, you kind of think that you would be watching your step as a young woman, you know, newly married. Mm. Um, at least you've got the uh, first legitimate era. <laughs> <in the way. laughs> Wait you until you're bored at home right. with a couple of children That's under your right. belt and then consider the Because you have that famous <laughs> remark from Julia, of course, don't you? Where, you know, she, she talks about not taking passengers on board when, <laughs> unless there's cargo in the hall or something like that. Yeah, the whole yeah, idea. You know, that, it's a clever move. I wonder what are the chances you'll get caught. Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I mean, especially as a young girl. I mean, I can't Mm. imagine you'd be feeling particularly daring in those early years of marriage. Yeah, and and I think you think about the way that sexual experiences start to conform your outlook on these sorts of things, and there's bound to be dissatisfactions that can't be overcome and Mm. uh, incompatibilities that just seem insurmountable, Mm. and. I mean, what are your options? It's not like you can just get a quickie divorce. I mean, divorce tends to be the purview of men. Of course. And if you do divorce, the man's most likely to get the children, if you have mm. any. Yeah, um, so so it is, it's it is a bit a of a lose-lose situation. Yeah. So, you know, I guess be a bit strategic and get some on the side. Yeah, so that's exactly it. And you do get that sense, particularly in, you know, things like Offord and, and that sort of thing, you do get that sense that there definitely are extramarital affairs 
going on, you know, that sneaking around, be- you know, behind your Well, certainly, back. I mean, Ogwood yeah. would have you believe that it's <laughs> very, it, yes. very conventional. Absolutely. Um, I mean, yes, you, you do obviously take it with a grain of salt, but I mean, it is, it is really, it is almost hilarious and almost quite modern to hear about, you know, how he goes to, you know, the theatre because all the smart <laughs> women go there all dressed, you sure to hook up with some babe. <laughs> yeah, I think of the pickup artists of today and they could probably learn a trick or two from Ovid. Absolutely, yes. But then again, you do also get a sort of, um, not a nastier streak, but, you know, in, even in things like Ovid, and he seems almost sympathetic at times, I suppose, to, to women's cause compared to other <laughs> male writers, but you do get that sense of also rape, you know? I mean, yeah. that's, that's also a who's doing it to whom issue, I suppose, because doesn't really have to be consensual all the time. No, no. And I think this is the sort of thing that it doesn't tend to be discussed in practical terms. Mm. Um, it comes through far more in the sort of literature dealing with mythologies. Yes. Uh, where it tends, rape tends to be represented as very permissible in certain circumstances. Mm, absolutely. But how much, I mean... How does this go on in practice? Well, how, yeah. yeah, how much does this translate into practice? Mm. Well, I mean, who's going to write about it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, that, I suppose that's the thing that really intrigued me. I mean, I've never really been particularly focused on poetry, um, mm. even though I love, you know, we are focusing on the Republic and the Empire and that sort of thing, and that's what we both love. Mm. It's not really an aspect I've ever focused much attention on. Yeah. But coming across Sulpicia was a nice surprise. She is one of the few female voices we have. Yeah. And she does seem to take great delight in proclaiming her affair you know she she says you know basically that she's not going to be ashamed to say it to say that you know she has a lover and she seems to really enjoy it we don't have much of her work of course yeah yeah look we've only got fragments from Sulpicia and so it's it's interesting because I mean obviously there's debates about to what extent is this a female voice of course I should I should mention it is seemingly directed towards her husband so it's seemingly <laughs> how convenient how convenient I won't yes. get divorced for this but even, even so let's just say that this is all true you yeah know, this yeah. is a female poet writing about her love for her husband mm. it's still really unconventional for someone to write about their sex life I mean a woman to write about their sex life and their legitimate sex life because that's certainly yeah. not what we're seeing from the male poets no, is it no, uh, no. they're talking very much about their illicit how funny sex life. a man their... fantasizing about sex who'd have thought it seems so unlikely yeah, in these does. modern times <laughs> but yeah i mean so certainly ovid and Propertius seem to be focusing if they are discussing affairs with real women mm. they've couched it in enough sense of mystery yes. to try and have a sense of remove from it and there is always an implication that the woman is not necessarily available to them so this mm. is it's never the legitimate uh, affection that they're seeking out. This is yes. not. This is not prospering the marriage. No. In in any way. This no. is looking outside marriage for satisfaction. Mm. Whereas I guess what we're seeing with Sulpicia is a celebration of what can happen inside the marriage. Exactly, and that's what I mean when I say you know like I said earlier you, you kind of get a bit of hope sometimes just a little, <laughs> just because it guess it can seem quite bleak a little mm. you know. But and then, I guess uh, to me that sounds like the sort of factor that would that could be used as an argument for her being the legitimate author of these. Because yes. although her fragments do appear in another male poet's work, of course, yes. uh, if she is dealing with sexuality in a legitimate uh, environment, mm. this puts her at a really sort of strong distance from those other poets of her period. Absolutely, that- and she seems to be. I mean, as far as we can tell, because of course we're. Pretty much piecing it together from her own, you know, works of which, as we said, there is very like going little. around it's in the contextual circles. Yes, it? but uh, she seems to be a woman of standing. You know, she's not. <laughs> you know, she's she has two legs, <laughs> and she doesn't mind getting off them every now and then, having a she good old lie mind down. Lying <laughs> down. <laughs> That's right. So yeah, no, she 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 does seem to be. You know, she's she's this is a slave girl. This isn't a freed woman. This is an actual, you know, legitimate. Roman citizen lady. I may be so bold as to. And you know, in moments like these, it made me long for like Agrippina's work. Oh, <laughs> I know. It's lost. It's lost. Don't bother looking for it. But I mean, she could tell us a tale or two, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's shifting ahead a few generations course, into yes. the imperial period. Yes, but, yes. You know, these rumors of women authored works that just don't survive. I know. It'd be really interesting so to get a woman's perspective on this issue. I blame you, monks who didn't copy it out. I blame you all. <laughs> 
This doesn't look very important. No. <laughs> Shall I throw it away? <laughs> By a woman? <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> but yeah, you do you do get all these frustrating references to works written by women and mm. not necessarily poetry obviously you know not all these namby pamby <laughs> romantic notions <laughs> also you know things that we could really use in our future episodes about fertility and midwifery and mm. or, you know let's... save it for the future oh yes i will save it but it's coming it's coming <laughs> how at? Uh, but yeah, so it, it I is, hear you. Sis. Yeah, so that was um, that was really interesting to me because I hadn't really ever come across her because she is so minor in the sense that there's just so little. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it is frustrating. But uh, but it is her her vo- her verse is quite lovely. You know, it's it's quite touching for me. I was moved. Yeah, I was moved. I was moved. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do also love reading, of course, about another lady. A very probably a. An equally famous woman, I would say, of poetry. Do tell. Oh, yes. We, we referred to her earlier. I'll give you a clue. <laughs> she has a rather famous brother. No, I can't guess. <laughs> okay, okay. It's Claudia. Oh, my gosh. The of infamous course. Lesbia. So they say. Perhaps. Yeah, perhaps yeah. Catullus's Lesbia. Yes. I mean, she is an intriguing prospect. I'll just flag that I'm totally out of my depth. Catullus. <laughs> oh, yes. You see, I, I, again, I, you know, it's not someone I've particularly gone into myself, but... When you do read over his works on Lesbia, mm. uh, who's supposedly this Claudia Matelli, yeah, um, and then you piece it together, of course, with Cicero's, um, yeah, yes, you know, mention yeah. of her. I mean, she comes across as one of these rather independent young women. Well, shall she we comes say? across she comes across very badly. She does um, yes. in Catalinum. 34, I think it is. Mm. Uh, she, she's accused essentially of being a whore. Absolutely, yes. uh, and I mean the the whole. Uh, that's just a downside. Is that I wouldn't say Catullus's poetry helps her much. I mean, for well, you, he has very mixed feelings. He does, doesn't yes. he? Yes, I mean, you get the sense that you know, there's the beginning of the affair, down. and then there's the end of the affair. Yeah, there's the trauma. That's right. Yes, it's it's very it's very soap opera ish almost. You know, <laughs> their relationship isn't smooth. The course of true love never does. Well, and, yeah. and I guess that's the that's the part of the issue that we have with the poetry is yes. that is that the poets are very concerned to have a narrative trajectory. Of course, I mean it needs needs to be a torrid affair mm. that doesn't necessarily go well. There needs to be fuel for the fire. Exactly, and how true is this? How yeah, much is it reflected? And, and yes. like any creative person, how much of this... Is true. So, yeah. Well, how much of mm. the scenario has been created precisely to fuel the poetry? Mm. Um, amuse, you say? <laughs> well, not, but not just amuse, but mm. that sort of sacrificial lamb, I'll, I'll just put myself through the ringer with this yes. sort of pain yes. and just try and take it as far as I can to see what sort of poetry I can get out of. It. Absolutely, you know, and and there is all that. There is, of course, the question of you know, is lesbia even Claudia? You know, some people don't necessarily. Well, yeah, that. I mean, it's yeah. continuing sort of controversy. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> one of those scholarly arguments that will perhaps not be resolved and in our rages, lifetime. And it rages on. <laughs> yes, we should put some links to where you can find <laughs> some of the some of the material for that. But yeah, I mean, this idea that that the poetry is not just of sex mm. but a of cre- yeah mm. well of love but of mm. a creation of a particular type of sexual mm. encounter yes I mean it has to be illicit for it to really work particularly for the male poets at least of course yes. and it has to have problems it can't mm. it can't be something that's going well no so I mean the fact that it's illicit suggests that there's going to be troubles ahead anyway of course and you do get this you do get allusions to her having other lovers I mean mm. we're not just talking about a husband here <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe he is well maybe he is but <laughs> You get the feeling that there are others. Oh, <laughs> well, there are others. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the men are away. I mean, what are the women to do? I know. I, I mean, mean there's some poets work. in town. <laughs> a poetry convention. That's <laughs> the trouble with private politics. I said all summer, and it's like, and what are you doing? Oh, you know, hanging out in the forum <laughs> while I sit at home again. Exactly. Again. Weaving, <laughs> spinning. Tell us, come over and amuse me with your, <laughs> right. your stories. My sparrows, yeah. Dad. <laughs> Oh god! Only people who've actually read Catullus will get will get that illusion, but uh, but yeah, it is um, it is an intriguing case, I think you know, mm. because she was apparently a, a wealthy widow with a house on the Palatine. Mm. Um, yeah, and so it it does give you the impression. And what sort of sex do you think they're having? Well, it seems. I mean, Catullus. Uh, I have to admit, I was rather shocked. Oh yes, Catullus doesn't uh, doesn't shy away from uh, <laughs> using every. 
every term he can come across. I mean, it's quite explicit. It's mm. not, it's certainly not, when you think poetry, you do think, well, I think anyway, this very romantic, idealised sort of world, but it's, <laughs> it's quite raunchy. It's quite raunchy. I suggest you all pick up a copy. Your life in poetry has changed. That's right. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously this doesn't apply just to lesbia. This is also the whole idea of him also abusing people in his poetry, you know, using a bit of invective, mm-hmm. you know, you know, slandering people for being, yeah, all, all sorts of passive things. You've got a voice, you might as well use it. Yes, exactly. And that's the whole thing about Catullus. I mean, there are lots of theories about why he is so shocking. You know, mm. is, is he actually just being shocking for the sake of the shock value yeah well i mean surely yeah. part of it has to be the self-promotional aspect exactly yes. i mean this is something different something new <laughs> you haven't seen anything this depraved before that's right <laughs> and you when i read catullus i have to admit i i don't blame modern interpretations of roman sex life you know i mean it's and yeah and the whole idea what of sort him, of problems are created for you <laughs> <laughs> well the whole idea i suppose is when i you know when i watch something like spartacus blood and sand you know they swear a lot you know yeah, the language yeah. aspect it's it's quite it's out there you know and you do sort of wonder to yourself how much this reflects real life and mm. not that catullus is necessary real life, <laughs> but you can understand that if they picked up a volume of catullus and then set about writing their script well you, you i wouldn't think blame I, them you from, could come up with a whole new set of uh profanities Absolutely, uh, from yes because yes, that's the whole idea i mean the the roman profanities aren't necessarily the ones that we would think of you know as in you know they they do abuse people for you know yeah basically along the lines as you were saying before of the whole idea of a man being a passive recipient of this or that you know? mm. <laughs> or performing acts on women you know it's yeah, Those you don't want to be a man no. who really wants to pleasure a woman in no, ancient Rome. It doesn't no. go down too well. No. This idea that you can be contaminated. Yes. Uh, there are special terms for you. <laughs> Let that be a lesson to you. <laughs> you can be contaminated for visiting her downstairs. Exactly, mm. yeah. I mean, it is sort of fascinating to me. I just, I have to admit this whole attitude. It, why do you think that is? I mean, is it just the aspect of getting pleasure? Is it giving up your power? Or is it, I mean, I even read uh, one there, suggestion there is contamination with menstrual blood. Like, it's the whole idea of, you know, the unclean sort of aspect. Oh, look, I like that idea. I'll come back to that one in a sure, second. Sure, yeah. Um, I really, part of this certainly has to do with the utter subordination, you would think, yes, to the woman at this course. point in time. She seems to be in a powerful position. And, yeah. yeah, she's in a powerful position. She's mm. the one receiving pleasure. Yeah. And the man physically is receiving nothing yes. in that scenario. Yes. Uh, as somebody engaged in oral sex on a woman, they, they're they in an act of passivity, yes. uh, essentially, in, mm. in Roman sexual terms. Yes. And it's ultimate. Uh, you really have to be penetrating something, don't you? <laughs> if you're not Whether penetrating... Whether it's a mouth, an anus, or You're not a penetrating something <laughs> yeah. in ancient Rome, you shouldn't be having it. <laughs> you know, it's like... It's 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 almost like there there are things that are permissible and the things that are not permissible. And what is not permissible is being passive. Yes. And this act of performing oral sex is ultimately passive. Yeah, it really just begins and ends with penetration. There, there is no... Yeah. There's no payoff mm. physically Yeah, anal sex man. is actually fine. Anal sex is all right, isn't it? Oh, yeah, but yeah. there's no... But, yeah, because yeah. it involves the penetration. Yeah. So, it's it's a very it's different good. sort of it's good. Yeah, yeah it's a very different sort of uh, kettle of fish yes I don't know that that's a necessarily a good <laughs> which, is, which is something which I would think I would think that you know perhaps our audience would be a bit shocked because yeah. you know anal sex is probably less acceptable these days as in you know I mean it, obviously it's becoming it's, more mainstream yeah I it's think, out in there society. it's out there obviously, but it's probably something we talk about less it's probably something you're less likely to see in a movie or something like that well, you know, it's certainly not discussed. the Hollywood's version no. of a romantic love no affair, exactly whereas you know Kalingus um, to use a <laughs> Latin term. It's, uh, I think it's probably more mainstream than anal sex. I think so. But, it, but that's just my opinion. This is getting a whole different ball. Well, I would yeah. assume so as well. Yeah. But, you know, I yeah. haven't, I'm not, I'm not a researcher into this. pornography yes, or anything like a, that. I haven't done any sociological <laughs> studies. It's just a feeling that you get. Yeah. But it, there's certainly not really much stigma against it these days. Yeah. But yeah. this idea of the menstrual blood being yeah. a, a, a deterrent, con- a mm. contagion of some Ooh, kind. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's interesting. I think there's there's potential for more research here. I feel like this is a topic I'd really like to come back to, mm. looking at menstruation specifically in the ancient world. Yes, we could certainly um, do a lot on that because it's, you know, some people it has magical powers. And yeah, I'm not joking. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. no I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. Um, it, it's, yeah, for some people it can, it can do weird and wonderful things, but at the same time, unclean. <laughs> it can end up creating a barrier in mm. terms of, and a physical sort of, uh, a need to remove. <laughs> yes, yes. What does a woman do mm. uh, when well, she I mean, menstruates in ancient Rome? I certainly mean just off the top of my head. I didn't actually look into this, but 
I, uh, I, I do like Spartacus, as you know. He is my main <laughs> man. And I do recall a tale 73 of... 73 BC. Oh, yes, very good, very good. I do recall that uh, there were some followers, you know, of the slave army, two mm. women, who spotted uh, the Romans trying to surprise them because they had separated from the main army because they were having their periods, basically. Oh, okay. So even, I mean, and this is this is slave women, of course. These yeah. aren't, you know, necessarily Romans. In I fact, would... I'd say they're probably not. They're probably, Gal- I think they were Gallic women. Isn't it? Oh, okay. Mm. So even, you know, amongst other peoples. It's... Yeah, yeah. There's... Well, it would be interesting to look into it further, I think. I want to mm. hold this as a... We'll come back to this space. Yes, and I suppose this is where we should address you, our beloved audience. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome. Welcome, yes. We we do so want your feedback. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we are thinking in coming weeks of discussing contraception, prostitution, vestal virgins, chastity, unchastity. Spartacus. Spartacus, of course. <laughs> there are lots of topics we plan to cover in regards to sex, but we'd also like your feedback. So... I suppose we didn't really sort of introduce ourselves fully at the beginning, did we? <laughs> and what our mission is. We have a mission. We do. Um, We are both Roman historians Mm. and we're interested in exploring elements of Roman history. Uh, Initially, the sort of things that interest us, I suspect. Uh, But hopefully what we want to aim towards is doing uh, discussions where we're looking at the things that you are interested in as our audience, uh, the sort of things that you'd like to know about the ancient Roman world that perhaps we could help you out with, uh, with our access to resources. and Absolutely, because we are, we are not pr- approaching this in a strictly academic sense. We're more approaching it as uh, something that, you know, it entertains us to talk about it and read up about it, and we would like to illuminate you as much as possible. <laughs> and, and obviously it's, it's one of those sort of things where we're in a, a good position to be able to sort of go away, look at the source material, and sort of come back and sort of try to put it together in a few different ways and this idea that uh coming together and talking about it this is part of the historical process absolutely this is this is what historians do um and as you can see we don't always agree on things (laughs) in fact i dare say that uh when we argue we should adopt proper academic terms i don't think so young lady (laughs) back in your box I can't believe you said that. Exactly. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> tell me what you tell us what you'd like to hear more of. Tell us what you'd like to hear less of. Yes, we'd love your feedback. Yes, and we hope you enjoyed this introduction. As I say, it was a very general introduction. We're just sort of very gently introducing you to the topic and introducing ourselves to the format. And we hope you enjoyed listening to our discussion of sex in the Roman world, yes. focusing mostly on Republic II Imperial period. <laughs> That's a disclaimer. <laughs> yes, I suppose, that, I suppose that in terms of our uh, restrictions in terms of time period, we're interested probably about 150 BC, I'd say, up mm. until about... Um, most particularly sort of Trajan, but mm. we're, we're happy to sort of work towards getting sort of yeah. more inclusive of that later imperial period as well. And we don't mind a bit of mythology here and there. <laughs> I love a bit of mythology. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe we should devote I mean, whole a, hours to I, mean, I suppose we could finish up on that note in a sense that, uh, you know, the, the Roman gods, who had a suspicious amount in common with the Greek gods, uh, they're not... <laughs> no, no, don't <laughs> they're, they're not exactly chaste themselves necessarily. I mean, you know, they're very well, human in no. many ways. <laughs> yes, yes, and that's a topic for another day. It is. I mean, and that's the whole idea. You know, you don't don't have um you don't have a real sense of an idealized i mean there certainly are um virginal gods but they're not the most common i mean generally no generally not generally no. most gods are sexually active and mm. and the ones that are really famous tend to be promiscuous yes uh, so <laughs> zeus i'm looking at you <laughs> <laughs> well yeah. are you yeah. jupiter are you yeah. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> sorry bring it back to the room yeah <laughs> And of course, Venus being a very important god, ah, goddess, yes. sorry, goddess, yes, for definitely. the Romans, yes, she's... and you know she's a patron not just of matrons but also of prostitutes. So mm. you know and, she you has know, a Julius wide Caesar spread. Doesn't mind, doesn't know. mind a little bit of Venus in no, his background. He does no. not. But uh, that's an, a topic for another day, perhaps. <laughs> so on that note, we'll wrap it up. Indeed, it's good night from me. <laughs> good night. <laughs> Goodbye. 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 <laughs> <laughs>